This is Living With, the End in Mind, the COVID Conversations. I'm Kathy Worzer. There's no doubt that the news has been grim and frightening and confusing. The COVID-19 pandemic is sweeping the world, killing tens of thousands of people and making, at last word, more than two million people sick. The stories are hair-raising. People showing symptoms of COVID-19 coming into hospitals seeking treatment and dying hours later. The video of body bags being taken out of hospitals, overcrowded morgues, coffins lined up in empty churches is heartbreaking. The disease is not just affecting older people who have underlying conditions. COVID-19 has hit younger adults, too, sending many into ICUs where they've fought for their lives. Because death is a key part of the COVID-19 conversation, it's time to talk about our end-of-life wishes. Now, I know these conversations are hard, and let's face it, our society is not good at talking about death and dying at any time, much less in a time of crisis like this pandemic. So we've decided to find some experts to help. We want to do more than focus on filling out medical directives. I mean, sure, we'll have information on that. But we also want to look at why it's important to examine our relationship with death and how that final transition can be one of transformation. We thought we'd start our special series of COVID conversations with Kate Bowler. She's a professor at Duke University's Divinity School and the author of the best-selling book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Kate was diagnosed with advanced cancer when she was just 35 years old. She's a familiar and fun presence on social media, and in this time of crisis, also a thoughtful and calming voice. Hey, my loves. It's a holy Saturday. No one is up yet. It's those few moments to actually think. And um, today's like a very intense day. Uh, because uh, Holy Saturday is the day uh, where God is dead. I was like just having such a hard time in the last bit with all of the news about um, people who just like should have done more. Uh, People withholding masks from nurses. Trying to also Uh, help us understand um, or like answer our own question. Like, are we always good? Are we capable? of terrible things. And we just like need something outside of us to show us the difference um, between what is beautiful and what is terrible. All right, my dears, have a lovely and terrible day. Hey, so I've just been feeling very like emotional uh, lately looking at all the, like with the travel ban um, from Europe and uh, uh, the likelihood that people get stuck places. Um, It just reminds me of like, so in the last couple of years, uh, when I had to do treatment, I had to fly to Atlanta every week. And that meant that I met a lot of people who were like me, who were having to travel uh, for something terrible. And so they're on the plane, like really worried about being sick, um, just like scared for their health. And usually those people had to travel by themselves because it was like so hard to raise the money to get them the ticket. So I was introduced kind of to a whole world of really fragile people. And um, it's funny about being on the inside of that is like, everybody maybe knows one person that's going through something really hard. That's what it is when you're on the inside, you know everyone's one person. Um, 
So uh, I've just been thinking about all the places right now where people are stuck and feeling fragile. Uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, people who are um, the elderly who are in uh, residential care and are feeling. So if you have like a little bit extra, it might be a really nice time to reach out and offer like the smallest thing. So that's kind of just been like what's on my mind uh, lately. Uh, may you feel drawn in by the love of others and deeply at home in that love. And so pleased that Dr. Kate Bowler, who's really busy, even in a time of home isolation, has taken a few minutes to talk with us. Kate, how are you? Oh, I'm so glad to be talking to you. You are my break from teaching a dinosaur slash six-year-old boy. Wow. I'm glad I could do that for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, serious conversation here. In the past few weeks yeah. since lockdown, I've been talking to folks living with cancer and yeah. they're like, Hi, everyone. Welcome to our upside down, totally uncertain world. Yes. As a person who received a stage four colon cancer diagnosis several years ago, how are you navigating this time? Oh, yeah. It does have this very welcome to the world of chronic fear kind of feeling. And uh, yeah. And so for a lot of people, this is their first fear rodeo. And for someone like me, this is where I live, but it is bizarre. It's of course completely terrible to see the fragility of everyone and like a strange connection where I think we're all feeling the same thing at the same time. And that is, it's strangely universalizing. Mm. You mentioned that for some, this is the first big encounter with massive fear. Yeah. And there are veterans of this too. It's a reminder. I mean, sitting with the um, discomfort in anything is so very difficult. Yeah, how, how are you sitting with this yourself? Oh, well, um, you know, I noticed, especially during the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, it had a very similar feeling to that very first post-diagnosis moment for me, which is that you kind of lose your horizon. Like you don't know how to set the future because you can't speak I guess the way you used to. I used to be able to speak the language of the future so fluently, like, oh, in June, I'm going to go visit my family, like all the way that we make casual plans. And that just shrinks down to a very different horizon. And that was exactly what happened to me after I got sick. And it's, it's a, you, you suddenly realize that you're living inside a very different economy and you have to make different choices. So instead of just saying, you know, that this is a season or a spring or a year like any other, wow, we're really having to make more deliberate choices inside a world we didn't choose. It's so precarious. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And like, I love the word precarious because it helps us feel the contingency of it. Like things that can be given, but taken away is exactly where we're at. And that's not a feeling we like because our brains are like heat-seeking missiles for stability and comfort and certainty. We just want to be there and we're forced to live here, which is that most of the things that will define our lives right now, we don't get to pick. And so how do we, how do, we do Tuesday if that's true? Mm, right. Right. Exactly. I'd like to thank you, by the way, for doing so much work on social media, Aww. the daily reflections that you have about living in fear and dealing with uncertainty. Thanks. It's really helpful. Thanks. You have said that people who live with a lot of fear have taught you two routines, daytime and nighttime. Yeah. What are they? Oh, because daytime Kate is like, she's pretty cool. <laughs> she's got a lot of agency. She makes lunch. Uh, you know, like it's the person that feels like things are possible and it's your get up and go. 
And then there's your nighttime self, which is often more raw and vulnerable and like the things that you think at 2am. And so I found that because I'm I'm never like one person anymore. You know, you're always just like your durable self and your fragile self to just try to come up with a daily routine that can accommodate that. When you wake up in the day, I do this totally ridiculous thing where I kind of do like a little battery check. I'm like, okay, how are my batteries right now? So like I'm someone who has, because of chronic cancer, I have a lot of chronic pain. So I feel like, okay, well, how low is my pain battery? How's my family battery? How are they doing? Like, how's my emotional health? You just kind of check your batteries and you figure out like, okay, for this day, what can I do based on my battery levels? And then for night, man, I realize I'm a totally different, much more fragile person. And depending on how well the day went, I have to I have to honor the fact that that person's not maybe thinking clearly about the future. So I'll try to like shut it down earlier, watch TV that would embarrass my colleagues at Duke if they knew, (laughs) you know, you just like, you treat yourself like you're a delicate ecosystem and you just like glide that plane down on the runway and just like put it back in the hangar. You, you mentioned chronic cancer. That's not exactly a term you normally hear. Right. Well, Yeah. (laughs) The arc of my life has bent toward drama. So early on when I got that stage four cancer diagnosis, it was, it was clear right away that it wasn't going to be a zero sum game. It wasn't going to be something where it's just like, it's, it's necessarily cured. Cured was never a word people used. And so because I was on immunotherapy and it was a very wait and see, I had to learn to live between scans and like The great part of my last few years is my scans have gotten farther and farther apart and I'm doing better and better. And so, and the longer those go, the more horizon I get, but I'm still always kind of having that feeling of swinging vine to vine between things. And so I've learned not to be quite as like, like, honestly, Kathy, if you said, how are you? I feel like my brain short circuits with that question (laughs) because I'm like, because I'm toggling right between like, between because I, I just stopped, I stopped answering questions like that for myself. I'm great now. I can make choices now within the horizon I have. And that's, that's kind of how I manage the feeling of chronic cancer and chronic uncertainty. Wow. Okay. Against that backdrop, you're dealing obviously with an uncertain future, right? Yeah. And we all yeah. are in this moment. What was normal is gone. You know, yeah. what's in place are thoughts yeah. of loss, the fragility of life and mortality. Yeah. Do you think this pandemic has made us ripe for honest discussion about our mortality or, or does it just add to the fear? Oh, yeah. Well, historians are not supposed to be hopeful creatures. I'm supposed to answer your questions with something like, in the 1740s, <laughs> we faced a similar thing. <laughs> but um, I do think that for the last... I think since the 70s, I like to blame the 70s for most things, including polyester, but like, (laughs) especially since the 70s, we've had a set of cultural stories that have made it very difficult to talk about mortality. We have sold ourselves stories about our invincibility, that we are defined by endless agency, endless hustle. Like, man, you heard that in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, how everyone was suddenly going to learn French, right? Because they were inside for two seconds. (laughs) Like, oh no, a tragedy is another opportunity for productivity. And like invincibility has been a story we've been sold. We've been also sold a story of individualism in which each one of us is supposed to be an isolated cyborg that no matter what can make it on their own. And all of those stories make it really hard to have honest conversations about mortality because if <laughs> if we were honest, we would have to say things like, our bodies are prone to error. Most 
terrible things we don't get to see coming or prevent. Whether an airborne illness strikes our life is largely out of our control, though we can, you know, practice safe shopping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like the contingency of our very lives is something that as North Americans, we've been very bad at talking about. So do you think this opens the door the past few weeks? Oh, sorry. You asked me if I was hopeful. I'm supposed to be hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I uh, I do. Well, okay. I'll give you the unhopeful answer, and then I'll, then I'll reach for hope. Okay. My unhopeful answer is I study the self-help industry. And the self-help industry that you can do it, everything's a test of your character. If you're suffering, it's actually a lesson. Tomorrow's a brighter day. All of that actually is an industry that does really, really well in times of mass suffering. So right now at this very moment, a bajillion people are being sold a story about how they are their own problem. And it's not that they have, you know, failed government healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that the structures of their life haven't protected them. It's actually that they should have solved it long ago. And I am very sorry to say that that will always do well because that is what sells. And it looks so good on t-shirts. Uh, but I do think that if enough of us pay attention to the cultural scripts we're given, and if we just take a frank appraisal of our lives, like people are losing things that are irreplaceable right now. They are not able to hold the hands of the people that they love the most at the times that matter the most. And it's when we look at what we've lost that we're able to see, I think with fresh eyes, like we need stories that serve us better. And so I am hopeful that as long as we don't punish ourselves because of our pain, there is a big opportunity here for us to be a more generous and a more compassionate society. Mm, I like that. Yeah. When you say you, you know, to look to where, where we've been, yeah. I'm wondering, part of this deals with acceptance of the situation at hand, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. So getting to you and in terms of mortality, when you were faced with that cosmic slap upside the head with yeah. that horrible diagnosis... I thought I remember reading that when you started to look at your death, yeah. potential death, it terrified you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was just like, it felt unthinkable. And that's weird because I'm a very cerebral person, but it felt honestly like my head was full of impossible thoughts because I can't, like, like I'm a mom. When I was diagnosed, I had a two-year-old son and I would look at him and I would think, there is no world that can be good if I am not your mom. I think that's where it like hits the fan for all of us. It's not like abstract death, not just like the feeling of not being. It's the like, but who are we to each other? And what would possibly fill that space? That's the moment where we can't be lied to. <laughs> like no one can say it will be as good. That's where I felt like facing down death wasn't just a story about me. It was a story about my family and the people I love. And I felt like there was just too many costs that couldn't be borne. How have you come to an uneasy friendship with your mortality? <laughs> that is the nicest way of, like, honestly, the most genuinely respectful way of putting it. And I love you so much right now. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uneasy friendship. Absolutely. There's no acceptance, I think. I think because we can't possibly imagine that we would never not be. Like, everything about living is just breathing and being hungry for things and being alive and we can't imagine not being that. But I do think that what it requires, though, like what mortality or uncertainty or fear requires, though, is is not that you accept it, but you just kind of like turn your face toward it. 
I always felt like I was at the edge of a cliff and I could kind of feel my toes over the edge, like just feel the draft a little bit. And like, that was the big scary abyss, all the stuff I couldn't fix, my cancer, fear of dying, all the things I'd be lost. In good moments, I get to take a couple steps back from the edge. And then I get to invite the people who are bravest to just kind of like set up a tent right there at the edge. And I think that's kind of where we're at right now is we all have to live within proximity of that edge and you can feel it and it's not fun, but you can make better choices there because it's, it's real. It will help you decide who and what to love if you actually acknowledge how close you are. I think it was Sunita Puri who said that when in talking about death, you also talk about life. Yes. Which is what you're saying. Yes. She had this great thing. We talked the other day and she said that instead of just seeing the experience of your death, if you pay attention, you can feel the full force of their life. I thought that was because we're never going to be summed up, right? But when we acknowledge our finitude, it's almost like we're better able to sort of work backwards from the end of the story and being like, okay, because some of us were just in the beginning chapters. I'm almost 40. So I get to be in the middle chapters. I hope maybe at the end, but I don't get to pick, but working backwards sure helps me say like right now I should love my best loves. In this time of COVID-19, Kate, you know, obviously talking about death is hard enough, right? But yeah, in this time, yeah, people are realizing that death due to the pandemic aren't yeah. what we think of as a good death from what we're hearing in some of these horrible ICU situations. It seems to me that conversations around death from COVID-19 feel different. Yeah. How do you navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's much more like, this is only intellectual information as a historian, but much more like wartime deaths in which there's insufficient resources, insufficient response, insufficient supplies. There's an urgency to it that wasn't there before. And so much less sentimentality is afforded to us. And then the ability for people to surround each other with the presence that we've grown accustomed to in like times of great grief. And there's definitely an opportunity here to be very frank with each other about what we would want to happen to us. It's a good time to make plans. And it's also a good time to realize it's not that death wasn't there. It's just the veneer of it has been lifted. Like we can't have the precious moments version of it. And also I think we see it most too with not simply those who are grieving, but those who are sort of guardians of death, like all of the chaplains and nurses and doctors and pastors, all the front lines of death are living, not with the chronic fear that we've been talking about, but in that perpetual sense of crisis, they're facing mortality in a way that is much more like uh, a wartime situation than than anything we've had in a generation. Have you had conversations with your husband just in the past few weeks? I'm sure you have an advanced care directive, or maybe I shouldn't assume that, yeah, but yeah. because you have a chronic health condition, yeah. you're having to navigate this too. Have you had to change anything? No, I did that stuff right away. It was like the saddest 35-year-old visiting her Duke employment offices visit as possible. I think I like broke the hearts of every intake person as I was like, I'm here to talk about my death. (laughs) But but I I do that stuff kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid. So here's how my brain works on this. I do not know if it's useful, but I kind of have a two-track brain. The one track is the like frank appraisal of tragedy and the proximity of death side of my brain. And that's the one that makes concrete plans, files paperwork, is very practical. 
And that's the side I can only visit sometimes, but is usually just appears at about 2 a.m. when I think about things. <laughs> and then the other side is the tra-la-la-la. <laughs> and I'm actually not being like willfully ignorant of it or anything. It's just that because when we're alive, we want to be alive. And our sort of immunity to wanting to talk about death is part of what keeps us going. And so I just, I toggle back into that sort of the deep grooves of just assuming that I can move forward into a beautiful future. And so I stay in the other track long enough to make good choices. And then I toggle back so that I can actually live my life. And I don't really know how to do it differently, but that's kind of how I picked it. I appreciate hearing that. Thanks. Do you have advice, by the way, for people about how to open conversations with ourselves about our own mortality? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, the point where we should pay attention to our nighttime selves, our fragile selves. Because in the day, we'll think, oh, but my inbox is full and my kid is crying or my mom really needs something. We'll pivot back to the mundane. But it's our fragile selves that sort of nudge us and let us know that like, you know, I'm actually worried about this. Maybe I've never talked to my significant other about, you know, what I would do if I were in a similar situation. So what I would recommend is just to have like a little, not to like nurse those fears at 2am, but just to have a little notepad by the bed and like write down some of the questions or worries you have and then go to sleep. And then when you wake up, try to have a very normal 2pm kind of discussion about it. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Nobody has to cry. Just say like, look, I need to add some framing around what might happen because weirdly, And horribly, first comes pain and then comes paperwork. So most of the decisions we have to make just out of kindness for the people who love us are usually just paperwork decisions. And those we can do with a great amount of sense in the middle of the day, but just pay attention to the little nudges and see if there's any things that you just haven't quite thought of yet. We're getting close to the end of our conversation here. And I was thinking about circling back to what we've all experienced here the past few weeks and what we'll continue to experience here in the next coming weeks, you know, I don't know if it's too early to say what lessons are we learning, but I guess my question is, where are you finding meaning right now? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You know, I don't believe in lessons. Thank you. (laughs) you. uh, I'm so grateful. No. Yeah. I don't, um, because I don't believe that say like God is trying to teach me anything in particular about the pandemic or, you know, or even that this is anything except a tragedy. But I do find great meaning in the beauty and the terror of how we're seeing people respond to these huge tears in our social fabric. We are seeing all these gorgeous people rush in to care for one another. And we are seeing incredibly brave service people put their health at risk. The world has been split into the sheltered and the exposed. And I I do... I think the example of the exposed is absolutely unbelievable. And so I am really hoping though, that in the years and like the immediate future, the second this is over, that we will take stock of the sacrifices that they have made and make sure that we have the cultural, societal health structures that we need in order to help them mitigate all the losses they've sustained on our behalf. You know, I've discovered as a journalist, just kind of watching from the outside in. We've talked a lot about in the society of being independent and now we're in isolation, right? And we are our own islands in a sense. Yes. But, but I'm wondering if we're discovering how interdependent we all are, you know, and how we really do need each other. We are absolutely not made to be alone. 
It's just like, if we feel lonely because we're not built for this, we were never built to be enduring the kind of loneliness that we are, the absence of touch, the inability to reach out and make connections. We were not supposed to be productive automatons. <laughs> we were, we're fragile because we need each other. We get lonely because we need, I mean, all the hungers inside of us are because they long to be met and deserve to be met. And so now is a great time just to find whatever way we have to like scream that at the top of our lungs. We need each other more than we think. And we are woefully and wonderfully finite. So let's take that social permission and just get all the love we need. Final question here, my friend. Do you see a potential cultural change coming out of all of this? I really liked the meme that was on the internet. Just changes every day. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's always something new there, obviously. But you know, in the rush to go back to normal, really think clearly about what parts of normal you want to go back yeah. to. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. So yeah. I'm really, yeah. In the newsroom, we are thinking a lot about change. Yeah. And does some of the changes we've been seeing do they stick? The good changes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we see a downtick in the self-help industry, we will know that this has worked, <laughs> that that we are more interdependent, that we are more vulnerable, that we are less individualistic, less prone to shame when we can't get it together. I think more collectivist in our hope for the structures that are supposed to bear up our weight. I think we should just expect a lot more from each other, you know, like most of the institutions and communities that used to hold up cultures are thin or absent. So if everybody like joined a community group after this, I would consider it a great triumph against loneliness. And what are you working on? You're always working on something. <laughs> so yeah. you are, you're, you're incredibly busy and you're just like Aww. this one woman tornado <laughs> of content that just swirls and it's just an amazing Aww, thing to watch. Thanks. Oh, I'm writing a book about how we spend our time. I was always given a deadline for like when we thought, you know, how long I was supposed to live. And so I'm writing a book called The Anti-Bucket List about like, how do you make choices about life inside things you just didn't pick? So we'll see how it goes. I wish you well. Thanks, really. Thanks. I have been so honored that you took the time here to talk with us about all manner of different things that we were thinking about. And it's a scary time and you kind of tiptoe into some of these very big sticky yeah. issues, but oh, you're grateful. a great guide for that. Oh, thanks. And um, can I just say thanks to the journalists and the truth tellers? You guys have been doing really hard work out there telling people stories and no one has made it easy on you. And I'm just, I'm especially grateful. Well, Thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Take care of yourself, Kate. Aw, thanks so much. That is the amazing Kate Bowler, author of Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Her podcast is Everything Happens. That's available everywhere. If you have questions about end-of-life planning, drop us a line at endinmindproject.org. You can leave a voice message or just a plain old email message. Thank you for listening. And if you like this, tell a friend. I'm Kathy Warzer. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay curious. <laughs>